I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, if you haven't already gotten my February special report, it's titled IRA Tax Management Strategies. If you have an IRA, if you have a 401k, you have an investing partnership with the IRS. And the question is not, are you going to pay the taxes due on that account? But when are you going to choose to? And under current tax law, lower tax rates are set to sunset in 2026, which means for many IRA owners, for many 401k investors, there is an opportunity to save some money in taxes. I'd like to send you this report absolutely free that will outline some of these strategies. All you have to do to get the report is visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. And when you visit the website, just let me know where to mail the report. I'll be glad to do so at no cost and with no future obligations. So again, the website, requestyourreport.com. You know, last week I talked about the fact uh, that we are going to experience this cycle, this economic cycle, if you will, that has repeated itself throughout history. And that cycle is inflation followed by deflation. In fact, Thomas Jefferson gave us a forecast over two centuries ago that if we allowed private bankers to control the issue of our currency, that we would see this cycle, inflation followed by deflation. Now, you cannot dispute in any way, way, shape, or form that we have witnessed inflation over the past several years. That's indisputable. Now, what might be up for a bit of debate is what the rate of inflation actually is. Now, the official rate of inflation, as reported by the government, is the Consumer Price Index. Now, I think it's fair to say that we would all agree that the actual annual price inflation rate is actually greater than the rate reported by the Consumer Price Index. The official rate of inflation, the official consumer price index reported in December was higher than most analysts thought it would be. It came in at 3.4%. Now, if you've been to the grocery store, if you've been to the hardware store, if you've been to the doctor's office, you are undoubtedly keenly aware that this number, this 3.4% annual inflation rate, is not at all reflective of your price experience. See, the consumer price index is calculated using adjustments that are subjective. There's adjustments like substitution. There's weightings adjustments. There is hedonic or pleasure adjustments. And I don't have time to go into this in depth on today's program because you could literally do an entire program on how the consumer price index is adjusted, but suffice it to say that healthcare in the consumer price index amounts to about 10% weighting, but it amounts to about 20% of the U.S. economy. So there is a huge disparity. Substitution, if one particular good or one particular service goes up in cost too much, There's a bureaucrat in Washington that says, well, nobody's going to buy that. Let's substitute a lower-cost service or a lower-cost product. As products are improved and prices go up, 
There's a hedonic adjustment, meaning that that higher cost is justified because the product does more than the old one did. So there's a lot of ways that this consumer price index is adjusted, or dare I say it, manipulated. Now, there's another private inflation index that has come about because of largely Facebook. The Chapwood Index is a private inflation index that examines the prices of 500 different consumer items in over 50 different metropolitan areas across the United States. Now, right here on this program, right here on RLA Radio, I have interviewed the founder of the Chapwood Index, a gentleman by the name of Ed Batowski. Well, Mr. Batowski recruited foot soldiers in 50 different metropolitan areas all around the country. And these volunteers go out and find out how much it costs to buy a particular consumer item. That consumer item could be a takeout pizza, could be a haircut, could be a gallon of milk, could be a loaf of bread, could be an ink pen, could be anything. There's 500 different items. And every six months, they update what it costs to buy those particular items. Well, you can go check out the full results at chapwoodindex.com if you want to. But when you look at the top 10 metropolitan areas in the United States, including New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, you'll find that the five-year inflation rate, according to the Chapwood Index, ranges from a low of 10.1% in Phoenix and Houston to a high of 13.7% in San Jose, followed very closely by a 13.6% annual inflation rate in New York City. Now, if you are buying goods, as we all are, if you're going to the grocery store, as we all are, those numbers feel a little bit more like reality. So we now have inflation. The Fed has been increasing interest rates to get inflation under control, but now there are rate cuts again back on the table. So I believe we will see probably more inflation moving ahead, but we're also beginning to see signs of deflation. Now, since 1971, as we have talked about here frequently on the program, Dollars have been loaned into existence. See, it was in August of 1971 that then-President Richard Nixon eliminated the link between the dollar and gold. Up until that time, through literally August 14, 1971, if you were a foreign investor or a foreign entity and you wanted to exchange your U.S. dollars for gold, you could do so at a rate of $35 an ounce. On August 15, 1971, President Nixon went on television and gave a speech that says, that said rather we are going to temporarily suspend the redemptions of U.S. dollars for gold. Now, those redemptions have never resumed, and since that time, dollars have been loaned into existence because presently, if you put money in a bank, your bank has to reserve a minimum of 10% but can loan out the other 90%. So currency today is debt, and the bottom line is this. When debt goes unpaid, when debt levels are so high that they cannot possibly be paid with honest money, and there's defaults on debt, that means 
currency disappears from the financial system and we have deflation. So deflation is technically defined as a decline or a decrease in the currency supply. Inflation is defined as an increase in the money supply. Well, we are now seeing signs of deflation emerge, and I believe we're going to see even more signs of deflation emerge moving ahead. Now, this past week, there was uh, a company called Evergrande. It's a large Chinese real estate firm. This firm now, by order of a Hong Kong judge, has to liquidate assets And the $300 billion in outstanding bonds that Evergrande sold all around the world will likely now expire worthless or maybe pay those who invested in the bonds pennies on the dollar, but they'll likely have to be very patient. Now, $300 billion in defaults is a big number. But it's not much at all in light of the fact that worldwide now there's more than $300 trillion in debt. We are, I believe, just getting started when it comes to defaults. $300 trillion, when you do the math, it is impossible to argue, it's impossible to find a path forward that all this debt will be paid. So Evergrande is, in my opinion, the first of many stories that we'll hear on this topic in 2024. Now, the U.S. government has another big job ahead of it. There was an article recently published, and I'll talk to my guest on today's program, Mr. John Rubino, about this, that the U.S. government has to either finance or refinance $10 trillion in U.S. government bonds in 2024. Now, I'm going to ask John this question. Who is going to buy $10 trillion of U.S. government debt? In other words, who's going to loan the U.S. government $10 trillion? And if they can't sell this bond, if these bonds, if they can't refinance the debt, will the Federal Reserve become the lender of last resort? And will the Federal Reserve create more currency? And will that exacerbate the inflation problem? So there's a lot going on. There's a lot that makes me think that 2024 could be a very uh, dramatic year in financial markets and with currencies. That's why I'd like to invite you to get this month's special report. And when you get this month's special report titled IRA Tax Management Strategies by visiting requestyourreport.com, I'll also be glad to send you some bonus information, including a copy of my newly revised book for 2024, Revenue Sourcing which gives you planning strategies for the economy in which we now find ourselves. So again, go to requestyourreport.com. I'll be glad to send you a copy of the IRA tax management report. Also send you a copy of the newly revised revenue sourcing book. And again, the website is requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with this week's special guest, Mr. John Rabino. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. John Rubino. Uh, John is a very bright economic historian and researcher. Uh, you can read his work at rubino.substack.com. The website, again, uh, rubino.substack.com. Uh, John also co-wrote a book called The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. That was about 10 years ago. 
And uh, it turned out to literally be a prophecy as a lot of what John wrote about in that book is now playing out in real time today. John, welcome back to the program. Hey, Dennis. Good to talk to you again. Well, it's always fun to catch up with you. And, uh, you know, as I said in the intro, your book, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, uh, really is playing out now in real time. And for our listeners that may not be familiar with the book and the premise of the book, uh, maybe just a, a 30,000 foot view of, of, of what the book talked about. Yeah, the uh, the book talked about the emergence of what we now call the everything bubble. We called it the money bubble, um, James Turk, my co-author and I back then, because basically um, it, it wasn't just one sector of the economy that was um, being bid up to just crazy levels and generating insane amounts of debt and things like that. It was basically the whole financial system all of a sudden in um, what was an epic bubble. And so we predicted that um, the financialization of the world and all these simultaneous bubbles in the everything bubble would cause inflation, which would cause interest rates to go up, which would break the financial system. And we were, you know, eight years too soon with that. The interest rates didn't start to rise here until just lately. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it is, and what has been and it is on an ongoing basis, breaking lots of different parts of the economy. You know, the, we're so over leveraged that um, higher interest rates are existentially threatening to governments and to companies and to people out there. And we're just now seeing the, the effects of that. So, John, we talked a little bit here before we started recording and uh, give us your we talked a bit about the health of the U.S. economy. Give the listeners your assessment as to the health of the U.S. economy at the present time. It's not nearly as strong as the headline numbers <clears throat> make it seem. Like we just had a really good um, GDP report and a spectacular jobs report, but <clears throat> a lot of that is due to basically government playing games with the uh, the numbers. <clears throat> the jobs report, for instance, what they do over and over again lately is they'll report a great monthly number, you know, lots of jobs created, a really low unemployment rate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then they'll go back in subsequent months and um, revise that number down to something that would have been a disappointment if that was the original headline number. And they also hide a bunch of things in the, in the verbiage of the report. Um, for instance, they don't tell you that, uh, the number of part-time jobs is increasing while the number of full-time jobs is decreasing. And that's a sign of ill health in a society. You know, you want most people employed with good paying full-time jobs, um, but that's not the case. And, and uh, another weird stat that just came out lately is that the number of people with two full-time jobs is soaring. That's also a sign of, you know, societal ill health, because if you've got one good full-time job that's paying all your bills, you don't go out and take on another full-time job. You only do that, uh, well, in, in, in two circumstances. One is if you're a, a techie who is somehow able to wrangle two full-time jobs and work from home so nobody knows that you're working two full-time jobs. Uh, and the other is that, uh, and that, that's actually a thing, people do that in the tech sphere, but that's not you know, a huge number of people. The other is that, uh, you know, you can't make ends meet with a full-time job, so you have to take on another. Um, and um, 
life is horrible if you have full time two two full time jobs normally, and it's horrible for your family, right? Nobody wants to be around somebody who works sixteen hours straight, then comes home and has to sleep and has to have quiet and everything. And that's kind of the kind of world we're creating. And, and uh, so you can take that kind of uh, manipulation of statistics and spread it across the rest of the economy. And then you get today's world where they're kind of lying about just about everything. So things are not nearly as good as uh, they say. And to the extent that they're good at all, it's because we're running massive government deficits now. Um, This year, it's going to be like $1.5 trillion that the government is going to have to borrow. Um, And yeah, that's pumping some money into the system, but it's also massively increasing our debt. So it's the kind of thing that's unsustainable, gives you a little pop in the short run, but at the cost of a bigger crisis than anybody can imagine in the long run. And, you know, John, just the, the deficit spending, which, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. You, you can weigh in, but it wouldn't surprise me that we see some kind of an election year goodie bag here, which could drive the deficit even higher. But, I mean, roughly a $25 trillion economy, if all of a sudden the government was running with a balanced budget, our, our economy is 6 or 7% smaller. And aren't we in recession? Isn't, isn't deficit spending really the only thing keeping us out of an official recession at this point? Yeah, it's it's the main thing. That is. And uh, it's going to get much worse because this year the U.S. is scheduled to issue $10 trillion worth of Treasury paper. Um, Part of that is the deficit that we just talked about. And part of that is the fact that a lot of um, existing Treasury bonds and notes are rolling over. They're, They're maturing and they have to, you know, so we have to borrow the money again to cover them maturing. Uh, and so $10 trillion. Uh, what that will do is, since the um, all of it is at these new higher interest rates that we've got today, that means that the interest costs that the government is paying, which is currently about a trillion dollars a year, is going to go up to a trillion five next year and basically forever after. So that, that means that we've got embedded deficits, money that we have to borrow, of uh, what would have been considered a crisis level deficit just by itself, you know, just the interest expense would have been something that you would only borrow in in the face of, you know, the, the Great Recession of the 2010s or uh, the pandemic of 2020 and 2021. Um, and now we, we don't have anything like that going on, yet we're still borrowing that kind of an emergency level uh, of money. Uh, and that's a sign that we're kind of in a death spiral now where we have no choice. You know, we can't stop borrowing because, like you said, that would if we stop borrowing, that would lower everybody's standard of living by a really noticeable amount. And whoever did that in the government would get voted out of office. So, so we're basically stuck borrowing absolutely immense amounts of money year after year and then paying ever higher interest expense on that new money that we borrowed. Uh, and there's no real end to it until the whole system breaks down. So we're looking at a, uh, you know, a piece of financial history here that nobody in their right minds would want to live through. So we're going to live through it, you know. Uh, so the coming decade is going to be one for the record books. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. John Rabino. You can read his work at rabino.substack.com. The website, again, is rabino.substack.com. And, John, as you were talking and you said, wow, $10 trillion the government has to borrow this year uh, either to fund a deficit or to refinance, 
who's going to loan the U.S. government $10 trillion? Can it be done, or uh, will the Fed become the buyer of last resort here, in your view? Yeah, you would wonder, uh, for instance, China or Russia, they, they in the past have been big owners of uh, treasury paper, but you know we're picking World War III with those two. So why would they help us finance our military budget? Uh, and if you look at what they're doing, I, mean, I think Russia is completely out of U.S. paper, and China is, uh, is selling some of their treasuries each month, largely to buy gold, interestingly. So... Um, yeah, you're right. It's not clear who out there in the world is going to buy $10 trillion of new treasury paper. And it might just be, have to be the Fed, which means that the U.S. government is just creating dollars out of thin air and then running its operations with those newly created dollars. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that kind of um, presages the gigantic financial crisis. In, in the past, governments who have tried something that extreme. Uh, have always ended up with a gigantic crisis. So there's no reason to think that we in the U.S., who are now doing this on the biggest scale that any society has ever tried to do it, won't end up with a big problem, too. And that kind of takes us to the whole de-dollarization BRICS coalition thing, because um, as we use the dollar as a weapon around the world, you know, we pick on other countries in various ways, either militarily or financially. Um, a lot of them are looking for alternatives to the dollar in trade and for, um, um, you know, foreign exchange reserves. And so they formed a coalition called the BRICS, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, South Africa. And they're, they're, getting together and looking for ways to, for instance, do bilateral trade, where they just use each other's currencies to buy and sell things with each other. And, and uh, they're all buying, or a lot of them are buying huge amounts of gold with the idea of possibly creating a gold-backed currency that's just theirs as competition for the dollar. Uh, and they're expanding their membership. Lots of countries that uh, were maybe allies of the U.S., let's say, or at least non-aligned, are starting to join the BRICS coalition, including Saudi Arabia, uh, which, you know, there's the whole petrodollar thing where we kind of deal with them in the 1970s. And we said, as long as you only take dollars for your oil, we'll protect you militarily. And that really helped make the dollar the world's reserve currency, because you had to have dollars in order to buy oil. Well, if the country that's part of that deal decides to join an anti-dollar coalition. What does that mean? It means probably the petrodollar is, is uh, not a real thing anymore. So um, there are a lot of trends pointing towards the financial crisis for the U.S. And we could go on and on, you know, looking at the other things that are happening in the world. But suffice it to say that there's a lot of them and uh, a lot of all of them point in a dangerous direction for the U.S., and we don't seem to understand it or to be able to do anything about it. Well, I want to talk more about that in the next segment. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, John will join me again in the next segment. You're listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. John Rabino. You can read his work at rabino.substack.com. That's rabino.substack.com. And I'll return after these words with Mr. John Rabino. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. My guest on today's program is Mr. John Rabino. Uh, John is the co-author of the book, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, 
And you can read his work at rabino.substack.com. The website, again, rabino.substack.com. That's R-U-B-I-N-O.substack.com. And, and John, prior to the break, um, you know, you're talking about BRICS and the fact now that Saudi Arabia has joined BRICS. Uh, you also have a couple of oil, a couple other oil-producing countries that have joined BRICS. You've got United Arab Emirates. You've got Iran. And, you know, when you start talking about Iran joining uh, BRICS, um, and then look at some of the geopolitical tensions between us and Iran. Um, how do you think all these pieces are, are fitting together and, and might fit together moving ahead? Yeah, that's a potentially big deal because um, the U.S. has, uh, in, in trying to um, control the Middle East, the U.S. has traditionally played Iran and Saudi Arabia against each other because they're traditional Muslim enemies, the Shia and the Sunni. Um, Muslim coalitions don't get along with each other, and those two countries are the leaders of, respectively, those two blocs. And so normally they're bitter enemies, but now um, they're, they're, I think we're entering a stage where the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, comes into play. And the U.S. has antagonized both Saudi Arabia and Iran to the point where maybe they're, they're willing to put aside their differences in order to protect themselves from, you know, what they see as a, an aggressive empire. Uh, so, yeah, it, it could be that there there is a co- coalition that includes Saudi Arabia, Iran, UAE, like you said, and uh, India and Russia and China and a bunch of other countries. That's a really powerful coalition. They own a lot of natural resources and they control a lot of territory. So it's not clear what the U.S. would do to punish them, because normally, you know, we punish individual countries by kicking them out of the uh, the SWIFT international bank clearing system or, or uh, deny them loans via the IMF or the World Bank or whatever, or we, you know, go right in and um, send the CIA in to um, overthrow their government or we directly invade them. You know, we do all those things, but it's not clear how you do that to a coalition made up of those countries we just talked about. So, you know, the balance of power in the world is shifting and it's not shifting in a favorable direction for the U.S. And uh, simultaneously, the U.S. is going broke. So, like I said, chaotic world coming up. And there really doesn't seem to be any any way to go from here to a, a peaceful world where everybody gets along without an awful lot of pain. John, I'd like to go back and revisit something that you talked about in the first segment. You suggested that this uh, deficit spending by the United States government of one and a half trillion dollars a year plus, uh, you know, interest costs at the end of this year are going to be one and a half trillion, which uh, by my recollection is greater than the outlay for Social Security. So, I mean, these are really big numbers. And you mentioned that this will continue until the system breaks down. And when the system breaks down, could you share with the listeners in your view what does that look like, and how will they be affected? Well, it it looks like probably um, that we lose faith in the big fiat currencies out there. In other words, the dollar and the euro and the yen, uh, because we're borrowing so much money, and that's causing inflation. That causes the value of the currencies to go down. Uh, we, we see this massive lo- um, lack of trust in the people running the system that in the currency that they're running. And that leads people to um, 
not want to hold those currencies. There's a, a thing in the Austrian School of Economics called the crack-up boom, which is uh, the point at which a critical mass of people figure out that it's the official policy of their government <clears throat> to inflate away the currency. And so they dump that currency as soon as they get it. They get paid and they go out and use that money to buy real stuff land and gold and silver and maybe the the shares of energy companies and other commodities based companies that have things that governments can't just inflate away um, so that causes a huge shift of capital Pe capital flows from financial assets like bonds and a lot of equities into real things and that causes the value of real things to go through the roof uh, that's the inflation that uh, that we see when the currency starts to fall. So, you know, in, in anticipation of that, you want to own things like that already, right? So have some farmland if you at all can do that. Buy gold and silver. You know, you can buy gold and silver coins at, uh, from Costco and Walmart online right yeah. now. Isn't so that it's easy, a, it's amazing? Yeah, yeah, which makes it easier than it's ever been before to um, – to shift your finances into real things, just you know, buy a bunch of gold and silver coins from these companies that you trust to deliver them to you, and then keep them in a very safe place. And the you know the bedrock of your finance, your financial life, then is made up of real things, real money that will probably go up in value as the currency in which your your country is uh, is managed goes down. Um, so it's it's a very quick, easy way to um, to take the first steps in protecting yourself. And there are lots of things you can do beyond that. That's basically what I focus on in, in my Substack newsletter: it's actionable stuff. In other words, okay, we know there's a crisis coming, but what all can we do to protect ourselves from what, ourselves from what's coming? And it turns out there's a lot of stuff, you know, from uh, improving your personal privacy to investing successfully to developing certain skills that might be really valuable going forward. Um, you know, there's been no shortage of material to write about. Um, there probably won't be going forward because it, there doesn't seem to be any way to avoid some kind of a big crisis. The, uh, the details of it are unpredictable, but that will define it as a crisis when it comes is almost guaranteed. Well, my guest today is Mr. John Rabino. You can read his work at rabino.substack.com. That's rabino.substack.com. And uh, John, you, you mentioned that uh, developing skills that could be useful moving ahead might be a really good idea for some of our listeners. Could you dig into that a little bit? What kind of skills would you recommend that, that people look to develop? Well, there's... Um... There's an idea now that the, the handymen will inherit the earth. And the, the point of that is that uh, most of us have gotten less and less good at doing things that um, that maintain us day to day because we think we'll just pay somebody to do it. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have gotten college degrees that are turning out to be virtually worthless that didn't really train us for anything useful. Um, so there, there's a concept called st skills stacking that um, – it basically says, you know, figure out the things that make day-to-day -day life easier and learn those skills. So if you can, for instance, grow 20% of your family's food, you're insulated to an extent from the risk of uh, disruptions in the food supply chain. Um, if you can do, you know, basic carpentry and stuff like that, it's going to come in very handy in, in a world where things can go wrong and there's no guarantee that you can get the repairman to come on time. Um, 
self-defense. <laughs> you know, the, the more stressful the world becomes. You know, already, um, if you're living in a city, you you get that you really need to be able to defend yourself, probably. But you know, for everybody, if you um, if you don't have a firearm, get one. Learn how to use it. You know, so it goes on and on from there. There, there are lots of things that you can learn how to do um, to um, to protect yourself from times when the big systems don't work the way they should and you're not taken care of the way you have been doing, during most of your life uh, by the establishment. And, uh, you know, it goes on and on. When you look around, uh, you see all kinds of things that you pay people to do um, that um, maybe you could learn to do yourself. So. That is an ongoing process. Oh, and you know the final one, and maybe the biggest, is uh, becoming more enmeshed in your community. Um, it used to be that we knew all our neighbors, and uh, they would watch our back, and we would watch their back, and that, that was just how our parents lived. But um, today, most of us have moved around a bunch of times during our lives. We haven't gotten to know our neighbors very well. We should fix that. You know, you want to become as uh, um, as intertwined in your your community as as you possibly can, because then people watch your back and uh, you've got people you can trust. Uh, and that's obviously always the way we should have lived, but now it's more important than ever. So that's, that's a big one. So John, in the time we have left, uh, are you, uh, do you see this when the, as the system breaks, as this de-dollarization continues, do you think we're going to enter a period of time that, you know, when historians look back, they will call it a hyperinflation similar to the one, you know, that Weimar Germany experienced, similar to what, you know, Argentina, Venezuela have experienced more more recently? That is definitely one of the possibilities because we're making the same basic mistakes that those other countries made. We're not immune to that. The idea that um, the basic laws of supply and demand don't apply to a country with a monetary printing press is ludicrous. And in fact, the monetary printing press lets the country make the mistakes more easily that lead to stuff like that. So it, that's not guaranteed though, because it's possible we could do something called a monetary reset before that, where um, you know we basically just go back to something like a gold standard, some, something that controls the ability of governments just to make money out of thin air. Uh, and that would, that would end the process of never-ending inflation, but at the price of uh, impoverishing everybody who trusted the government held onto this currency. So that's that's not something governments want to do. They don't want to give up the power to create money out of thin air, but they m might end up seeing that as the least bad option. They might do it before we hit hyperinflation. The one other possibility is a 1930s-style deflationary crash, because it could be that all this bad debt that we've got coming due just swamps the monetary authorities and makes it impossible for them to inflate their way out of this. And then, so we get something like 2008, 2009, which is a very scary time when, uh, when you know, prices went down and interest rates plunged and lots of uh, companies went bankrupt, lots of people lost their jobs. We could have something like that on a much bigger scale. So the thing is, you, you don't know how all these monetary mistakes are going to manifest. We don't know exactly what they're going to cause out there. But all the all the options are really bad, and so we should be preparing to, as best we can for the worst case scenario. In other words, uh, like, like the old saying goes, uh, "Hope for the best, but plan for the worst." And uh, I, you know, there's no end to the uh, the kinds of planning we could do. So it's the kind of thing that keeps you nice and busy once you get going into it. 
Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there. That's a great place to end. My guest today has been Mr. John Rubino. You can read his work at rubino.substack.com. I'd encourage you to check it out, rubino.substack.com. John, always a pleasure to catch up with you. It's amazing how fast 25 minutes goes by when we start talking. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and I would love to have you back down the road. Thanks, Dennis. Look forward to it. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to my special guest today, Mr. John Rabino, for joining me on today's program. Hey, if you're just tuning in, I have a brand new special report for the month of February. It is titled IRA Tax Management Strategies. I would love to send it to you. It will be especially applicable if you have an IRA or a 401k. Keep in mind, if you do have an IRA or a 401k account, It's not a question of, are you going to pay the taxes on your retirement account? The question, of course, is when will you decide to do so? Current lower tax rates sunset in 2026. And along with those tax rates sunsetting, so do many planning strategies. So this report will give you some strategies that you might be able to consider for your situation. Go to requestyourreport.com and I'll be glad to send you a copy. Again, the website requestyourreport.com. Also, if you are concerned about hedging from inflation, which is the topic of this segment, I'd like to invite you to get our Precious Metals Buyer's Guide. Uh, That's available by visiting plpmetals.com. That's P as in Papa, L as in Limo, P as in Papa, plpmetals.com. Just let us know where to mail that, that buyer's guide, and we'll be very glad to do that. So speaking of inflation... If you're paying for car insurance, which the vast majority of us do, you are aware that car insurance costs are through the roof. Car insurance costs were 20 plus percent higher in December than they were a year earlier. Now, Bankrate tells us the average annual car insurance premium is now $2,542. That 20% jump in car insurance premium rates That's the biggest jump since the government began keeping data in 1985. Now, why is car insurance going up? Well, the article that I'm quoting here is from Yahoo. They talk about um, a lot of economic distortions that still exist because of the COVID pandemic. I would simply argue that if you apply a little common sense to what drives car insurance costs, It's car repair costs and car replacement costs. Inflation has seen car replacement costs, car repair costs go up. And what we're seeing now in car insurance rates is just reflective of that. Now, inflation is also taking its toll on everyday Americans. An article published by Hannah Horvath this past week tells us that 44% of Americans cannot cover a $1,000 emergency expense from their savings. 44% cannot afford to pay a $1,000 emergency cost from their savings, according to a bank rate survey. Why is that? Probably inflation is to blame. In fact, in the third quarter of 2023, Credit card debt reached an all-time high once again, touching nearly $1.1 trillion. Now, there's certainly a lot of talk out there that wage growth is outpacing inflation. 
that's really not the case. As I talked about with John Rabino today, there are a lot of distortions that uh, exist in government reported data. And wage growth may be outpacing inflation if we use the consumer price index, as we talked about in the first segment of today's program, to measure inflation. But the consumer price index is heavily adjusted. There are hedonic adjustments. There are substitution adjustments. There are weighting adjustments. And the end result is that the 3.4% inflation rate that was reported in December is really not reflective of the overall inflation rate. So if you look at the overall inflation rate, which was we talked about in the first segment, according to the Chapwood Index, is somewhere between 10 and 13% annually, depending on what part of the country you live in. And the Chapwood Index, for those of you that are just joining us, uh, it tracks the price of consumer items, and it checks those every six months in 50 different metropolitan areas all around the country. And the Chapwood Index concludes that the real inflation rate is somewhere between 10 and 13%. If that's the case, we now know that wage growth is not outpacing inflation. So there's certainly a lot of distortions in the economic data that are out there. Now, one other thing that's going on, and I talked about it today with John Rabino, and that is that the BRICS countries are openly suggesting they're looking to develop a trade currency, perhaps a gold-backed trade currency, uh, to replace the dollar, at least in trades between the BRICS countries. Now, the BRICS countries originally included Brazil, Russia, India, and China. South Africa joined the BRICS uh, coalition shortly after that. And now we have Egypt, Iran, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates as part of BRICS. Saudi Arabia, as I talked about with John Rubino, is a big one. Saudi Arabia really uh, had the petrodollar uh, since 1973 through last year. If you wanted to buy oil from Saudi Arabia for 50 years, you had to inventory U.S. dollars to do so. That is no longer the case. Saudi Arabia is now considering other currencies if you want to buy oil from them, and they are now part of BRICS. Now, Michael Grulon had an article that he wrote this past week, and I want to give you just a bit from that article as it relates to this topic. During its 2023 summit, it talks about the fact that these new countries now have joined BRICS. There is another summit scheduled for later this year in Russia, and more nations are expected to join BRICS. And BRICS really has the, the, the goal of developing this alternate currency to the U.S. dollar. So the BRICS goal, in a word, is de-dollarization. There are dozens of countries that have expressed interest in joining BRICS, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the dollar simply does not buy what it used to. So we have all these things that could potentially feed inflation in the short term, but long term, as I have said many times here on the program, we are likely looking at a deflationary period because of all the debt that exists. So we've got this cycle of inflation followed by deflation, and it is now playing out before our very eyes. To that end, I would love to invite you to get some additional resources. You can get the IRA tax management report by visiting requestyourreport.com. And when you do visit requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail that report, 
I'll also send you a copy of my revenue sourcing book that's been completely revised for 2024. Uh, that is absolutely free as well with no obligation. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.